0: speed there. But um, we're going to be in Romans chapter 12 verses um, 3 through 8. And Steve read it earlier um, in our service and talked a little bit about it as we're going to be looking at sort of the body of Christ and the gifts that the body of Christ shares and and exhibits with one another. Um, So let me read this and uh, we'll put it up on the screen for you and then we'll dive right in. Romans chapter 12 verse 3 through 8 say this. And then if I'm a little behind on these, yeah. saw that the first step of what it looks like to live what we would call live the Christian life, basically, to live your life differently because of the gospel, the good news of the gospel and how it's changed you. The first step of that is to have a, a transformed mind, to allow our mind to be changed before really anything else changes. And the way that our mind is changed is that instead of following this pattern of the world where it kind of punches out copies of the same person over and over again, um, we instead take the word of God, uh, what we gain about our knowledge of him through being in community together, through worshiping together, through encouraging one another, the very words that we sing that we kind of like uh, focus on each week as we worship him, um, the words that we hear and that we go through like right now, the words that you read in God's word as you go to it daily, praying and talking with him, all of those things are this sort of like new information, this more true and reliable and accurate information that we now have access to as we walk the Christian life out. And Paul says that now that we have that, if we set our minds on that, then they will be transformed. They'll be changed and will be changed in our way of thinking. What we see this week in our verses is what the first thing that changes is gonna be. As our minds are changed, as our thinking is changed, then the first thing that's gonna be different is the way we see ourselves, the way that we view ourselves ourselves. That's what this passage is going to tell us. The first thing that God tells me um, is who it is that I am in this kind of transformed mind that we have. God tells me who I am. Now, you might hear that and think, well, that seems kind of obvious, but it's not quite so obvious when you really stop and think about it. I think that we live in a world in a culture in which we are sort of all together going through kind of an identity crisis, Um, each individually going through an identity crisis, but I think it's kind of like everyone's going through it. Um, As I talk with people who are younger, I recognize that there is more pressure now for a young person to um, become something incredible than there ever has been before. That's kind of a lot of pressure if you don't know that, right? Uh, You must accomplish and achieve significant things, or at the very least, you must give the appearance of achieving and accomplishing significant things for other people, especially on the internet or something, so that then your kind of existence is justified. But on top of the fact that you really have to make like this huge, Difference in the world. It's almost like you have to justify your existence by what you do. Um, not only that, but there's also a tremendous amount of pressure that young people feel to be completely and totally like aware of who they are in their deepest, innermost heart. So not only do I have to become something incredible, I have to already, I have to figure out like what am, who am I in my deepest depths of my heart, and then how do I live those desires and that person out with absolute absolute. absolute authenticity and realness and with nothing getting in my way. In fact, the thing that is probably most admired is if there are things about me that I think that like might get in the way of anything, then I just get rid of anything they get in the way of and I go, I have to be true to myself while at the same time becoming an incredible person who's accomplished amazing things that change the world. That's kind of a lot of pressure. I talk to people in the middle age years of life who feel like for years have kind of presumed that the job that they're working in, the career that they've invested themselves in is going to tell them who they are. That, that the family that they're building and that they kind of figured my marriage, my kids, all this stuff I'm going to invest in, that that is really going to give me the clearest sense of like who I am. This is who I am. Or even just the fact that the things that you begin enjoying in life as you live this life, you kind of pick up hobbies, you pick up things that you like to do. You go, you know, other things are stressful, but these are the things that kind of tell me who I really am. And yet, as I talk to many people, as they live many years of life and find themselves kind of in the middle of life, there's this feeling oftentimes of like, But the problem is this this, this job that I'm doing, it isn't what I thought it would be. It doesn't make me as happy as I thought it would or fulfill me as much as I thought that it did, or it certainly doesn't seem to make me feel like I understand who I'm supposed to be any more than I did when I started. This family that I've so invested in, um, it's, it's, a, it's a lot, and I've invested a lot into my family, but I don't know if it's supposed to look quite like this. I don't know if I'm doing it the right way or if I'm doing it well. A lot of people are like, yeah, I, I, you know, do any of us really think our families look the way they're supposed to look, Right. Um, and no, none of us do, right? But we go, like, is this really, like, who I am? Like, I'm the person that just kind of has this that has this family? Um, is that enough? What does that mean? Or even the things that bring us joy and bring us pleasure in life as we live more and more of life, we kind of reevaluate and we go, like, is this it? Is this really, like, who I am? Is this really why God put me on this earth and what did God put me on this earth to do? I even talk with senior citizens, people in the later years of life, who are experiencing this incredible, difficult, like, time of living in a world that doesn't really value... Seniors like uh, maybe more traditional cultures did you see in the past like a, a person who's older is seen as kind of like the most Valuable part of a family and the family was kind of built around them and and they were kind of supported and you know There was a lot of wisdom there and a lot of experience But if nothing else you got to be honest right they did kind of raise us all right So like at the very least we could do is we could also take care of them, right? That's not really the way culture works anymore and because it doesn't work that way anymore a lot of older people I talked with are like who exactly am I now that I'm at this point in my life, where it feels like there's less value placed on me that this, that the culture i 'm living in and the society that i 'm a part of tells me maybe you 're a burden or, or may, maybe maybe you're you're you, we just kind of like you know don't want to don 't want to deal with you anymore rather than like you 're an important valuable part of something bigger right um, I think that like in all stages of life, I talk with people who experience what often feels kind of like an identity crisis, and the question is you know. Like, how do we figure out who we really are? Well, what Scripture tells us and what it shows us is it shows us that there needs to be something outside of our own experience. There needs to be something outside of our own culture and our own world even that tells us who we are. If there isn't, it's always going to change and we'll never really fully know if we can trust it. This is what Scripture offers us. This is what it is to have a transformed mind. And this is why God is the one who tells us who we are. The thing that messes us up the most is we feel this need to discover who we are for ourselves, but we come to find out at some point how impossible that even really is. Paul says to the church here that um, in order to understand who they are, they have to understand where they are how high or low they might be. And he says this, by the grace given to me, first of all, this is something Paul says when he's about to tell you something kind of hard, okay? So when Paul is about to kind of like, you know, call you on something, a lot of times he'll say, by the grace given to me, the reason he does that is because he's saying it like from a position of authority. So he's kind of saying, listen, guys, I'm an apostle, so you need to listen to me, okay? I'm the guy writing the letter that you're listening to being read in your church right now, so... Take my advice, and you really got to do it, right? Now, when he says that, he doesn't want to come across as being arrogant because Paul looks at his own life and goes, I have no control over what's been happening here. I I think it's by the sheer grace of God that any churches were planted through my efforts. It's by the sheer grace of God that I ended up as a Christian and not a, a Jewish Pharisee that was persecuting Christian. It's by the grace of God that, like, I'm even writing you a letter and he's using me at all. But, Nevertheless, he is, and so take this maybe hard advice. So Paul says this by the grace of God, saying to the church, pay attention to what I'm saying because it's coming from an important place, not because of anything I've accomplished, but because of God's grace alone. He says, for the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. So, according to Paul, there's this tendency that we're going to have. He doesn't know the individuals of the Roman church all that well, but he knows church very well, and he knows people and churches, and what he knows about people makes him say to the church, first and foremost, don't have too high of an opinion of yourself, but think with sober judgment. So, what Paul is saying is that if we have a tendency, the tendency is most likely to think more highly of ourselves than we should, to have a bigger ego than we should, to be more arrogant about maybe who we are or where we're at or how people should look more like us than we should. Instead, Paul says, we should have a sober judgment about ourselves. Now, this is, again, pretty pretty different from probably what the world would tell us that most people need. The world would tell us that most people probably need to feel better about ourselves, that we need to have a higher opinion of ourselves, a higher view of ourselves to love and appreciate ourselves more fully. That's what a lot of the discovering who I am is kind of coming from in our world today. But what Paul says is he says, "Eh, I think if anything, we probably could have a lower view of ourselves. Why would Paul be saying that? He's saying that because there's a tendency that people have in the church to think that everybody should be more like them. Um, and, uh, and or at least that's, that's something that happens often in church. And what he's saying is you guys need to bring that down a little bit. What he also says about where this is rooted in is, he says, by the measure of faith that God has assigned. So he says, God has created you to look and act and be a certain way. And the way that he has created you to be He has assigned this measure of faith to you. Now, uh, the measure of faith is kind of language that's describing when a person is like, like giving out a bunch of portions of a thing. And he's not saying like God gives more or less faith to people. He's saying basically God portions out faith. He gives out his grace to all of his children. And who you are is um, your worth and your value and your significance is first and foremost the result of the measure of faith that God has given to you, not the accomplishments and the things that you achieve. So right off the bat, what Paul is saying, what we, God tells me about myself is he says to me about myself, like, you are valuable, you are significant, you matter. But it's not because of the things that you accomplish, the things that you do, and it's not because you found a way to get into a religion that makes you better than everybody else. Which is kind of an appealing thought to a lot of people. He says, no. No, your value and your worth is tied to the fact that God has given this measure of faith to you. But what he's done, and I don't think that we really like this word very much, is it says he's assigned it to us, right? I didn't get to pick. God just assigned it to me, right? You see, I think that um, God telling me who I am can be a very freeing thing, or it can feel like a very suffocating thing. It can be something that brings us a tremendous amount of liberation, I no longer have to understand all the secrets of the universe in my own heart, which is constantly changing and at war with itself in order to know who I am. God tells me who I am, and there is great comfort in knowing where to find that, those truths and those answers. But for many, I think this can feel restricting. It feels suffocating. I don't want someone to tell me who I am. I don't want someone to assign me as a certain kind of a person and just kind of leave it at that. I want to have more autonomy. In this discussion i want to have more freedom in this discussion i want to have more to say i don't know if you um can think of times in your life where you haven't wanted to listen to someone who's telling you to do something you're probably like no i can't remember any of those times right that someone's told me to do something and i haven't listened i mean i think i'd remember i think i would have heard them right no, in reality, we, we're not really putting our fingers in our ears and making loud noises when, when, when there are things that we don't want to hear. We just are really, really bad at listening. We're, overall, we're pretty bad at listening to the sources of truth that are out there. We're bad at listening to each other. I mean, let's be honest, right? We're not like a great, we don't have a great attention span as a a culture anymore. And so, and when I say culture, I mean all of us. I don't just mean like outside the walls of the church. I mean, it's not getting easier to listen to each other, um, especially with the way that we choose to communicate to each other. Uh, My wife and I are like, trying so hard, we're trying so hard to to listen to our kids, to draw them out, to to ask them questions. Every night we sit there at dinner and we talk, they get the, the rapid fire machine gun of questions about their day. And that's how it feels to them. They're just like, oh, here we go. You know, like, how was your day? How was school? What'd you do? What was good? What was bad? Because you changed one thing. What would it be? What'd you have for lunch? What'd you do at the recess? We try to figure out specifics, all these different things. But it's like, I don't want to answer all these questions. I don't want to tell you all this information, right? Um, and, so, and we're trying really hard to hear. What, what we find is that most of the time that our kids are going to tell us real significant things about themselves, it's not going to be when we're asking them questions. It's going to be at other times. And I think that this is a little bit of how God's, God's word works and what it means like to have our minds be reshaped. You can't just open your Bible one day out of the blue and go, God, tell me who I am. I need to know today and I need to know in the next hour because I got some big decisions to make, right? Uh, no, we, we're not very good at what actual listening looks like, which is sort of quantity over quality. That's how relationships work, right? If you want a quality relationship with someone, you need quantity, Sorry, I said quality over quantity. It's the other way around. You need quantity. You need time with a person in order for who they are to be revealed to you and for you to hear from that person. We spend time in God's word, we spend time in the community of faith, we, we do these things and we, we repeat them back to each other, these truths about God and about who we are, because not because we have a specific question today, but because it just shapes overall the way that we see ourselves. But it's hard for us to listen to that voice much of the time because it might tell us things that we don't want to hear. It might tell us things that, that make us feel like we're not so in control. But Paul's very clear in his words to the church, he says, your view of yourself is based on what God has assigned you, who God has made you. It's not just based on what it is that you want. The other thing that he says in the following verses is he says this, he he tells me that I'm different. God tells me who I am, but then he goes another step, and God tells me something very specific, which is that I'm different from other people, from the people around me. And this is something that's often lost on us. Paul continues on and he says, for as in one body, we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So it's interesting what he's saying here is that he's saying the church is a physical body. And there's different parts to that body, and we're all one of those parts, each and every one of us. In other parts of Scripture, like in Corinthians, when he talks about the body of Christ again, he uses even more vivid language, and he basically says, could you imagine how, like, grotesque and freakish and terrifying it would be if there were a body that was all made up of one part? Like, that would be something out of a horror movie, right? And yet there's something about us that feels inclined to want sameness amongst all of us. And so we equate, we go, okay, God tells me who I am. He tells me we're all on the same level. None of us are better than others. Fine, then that must mean we're all the same. Up ah, here's where it gets interesting. That's actually not the way God made us. He says God made you incredibly different from each other. And he did that for a reason. And that's why you're different from the people around you. We're equal in worth and faith and value, but different in gifts and talents and callings. God creates us using diversity. He gives us different backgrounds and different histories, different personalities, different temperaments, different skills and gifts and talents, different levels of ability at different things. God makes us different because he has different things that he's created us to do in his body. And knowing that God actually created us to be different keeps me from having too high of a view of myself I don't get to go everyone should look the way I look but it also keeps me from having too low of a view of myself which often happens where we go I should be more like these other people I should do the things these other people are doing I shouldn't be this way God needs to change I need to change this isn't the way that I'm supposed to be and that low view of ourselves is not right that's not who God says that we are he says that I made you this way for a reason And and Paul's very specific about what that looks like in the verses that come after this, but I think the challenge with God telling me that I'm different is what what it kind of forces us to have to do is to actually accept ourselves. And we're really bad at accepting ourselves much of the time. I mean like being okay with who God made us, being okay with the way God made us, being okay with being different from people around us because they're not the same they're not as much the same as each other as you might think if you feel different from them accepting myself is a pretty hard thing to do a lot of the time and we don't often see this kind of diversity in the church which is hard groups of people have a tendency they have a tendency to want to look very similar to one another diversity seems strange it seems foreign it seems wrong we seem to find comfort in being around lots of people who are like us and exactly like us in fact churches can even be built on like one gift or another gift rather than multiple gifts and the result of that is many feeling like their gifts aren't really useful obviously the problem that people deal with the reason paul even has to say this is because there are some parts of the body that think that they're more valuable than others or there's parts of the bodies that think they aren't valuable uh, that they don't like how they were created. The, another metaphor that Paul uses in Scripture when he talks about how we're created by God is like a potter who makes things out of clay. And basically he says, you know, the potter gets to make the clay into whatever he wants, right? I'm, I would, If I tried to make something out of clay, I'd be very inexperienced. I'd be very inexperienced potter, which means I wouldn't know what I was making. I would just kind of be like, tell me what you want to be, clay. Whatever, let's see how this goes. Let's see what this turns into. All right, a big weird-looking bull. That's fine. I wanted to make a glass, but it's a bull. That's what you are. You decided, not me. But a real master potter, one that actually really knows what they're doing, they set out to make a very specific thing, and they make that thing perfectly suited for the function. And kind of the, the thing that it makes you think about when Paul talks about this is like it makes me think about like some master potter who's sitting in his little studio, and he's got his little wheel right there, and he's making stuff, and he's got all these shelves of things all around him, you know, that he made. And there's like this one over here. It's like a pitcher or something. It's like really unhappy of what he made it into. It's just like, you've got to be kidding me. Like this is not how I saw myself. This is not what I saw my life looking like. I don't want to be a pitcher. I'm probably just going to hold water or something terrible, right? Like, uh, and he's like, it could be worse. You know, it could be like a bedpan or something. Like we had to make those out of clay back then. Maybe I don't know. But you know, all it's thinking about is like, you know, this isn't what I wanted. This isn't what I wanted to be. And I like to think about this little pitcher that's like sitting here. And it's got like waving its arms around, and it's like this nagging all the time. Like this is what I want. This is what I wanted. I wanted something different. What are you thinking? Why'd you make me this way? Who are you to make me this way, right? And Paul kind of says like, who are you to say to the potter? what he should make you for, how he should use you, how he should intend for you to be used. He says, he's the one that creates you. So trust that he created you for something that is equally worthwhile, right? God tells me that I'm different. And that means accepting who he's created me to be. And that's harder than we think. I'll just say that. The last thing that we see here is not only that God tells me that I'm different, but God tells me that the church needs me. God tells me that the church needs me because this is ultimately where he's going and what he's talking about. The reason that he wants the church to begin thinking about their gifts and about who they are and whether they're higher or lower than they really think is because he's leaning to this place of showing them what the purpose of these gifts is. He continues on, And he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then he lists off all of these gifts. He says, everybody's been given a different gift. But there's kind of a point behind all these gifts. You're supposed to use them. You're supposed to use these gifts. They're not just things that we have And they just kind of are like the color of the shirt we wear. They make us stand out just a little bit from the person next to us. No, they're actually dictating and defining the function that you have in the community of God, in the body of Christ itself. And He lifts off each and every one of these gifts. But the thing that we have to realize in all of these is that each and every one of these gifts is an important gift. You see, there were two basic groups of gifts. There was like leadership teaching and there was serving. And it was common for those in leadership and teaching to think that their gifts were more valuable and that those with the gift of service, well, anybody could do that, right? That's not true, it turns out. Uh, It's all common for those who were with these gifts in places like that to think, I'm not very good. I'm not gifted in something very great. I should want to be like this. Or everyone just agrees and accepts that they won't be able to be like this. And so these are really the only gifts that matter anymore. This is usually what was happening in the church. It wasn't often that people with the leadership teaching prophecy gifts were like really jealous of the people with the gifts of service and mercy. And they were saying, man, I wish I could be more like them and do the fun, cool, important stuff in front of everyone that they get to do. That wasn't how it worked. You go through these gifts, and what you see him saying about them is he's basically just saying in one way or another, this is what it looks like to actually use this gift the way God intended. He says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, the prophecy is a person who speaks these great things of faith. But it is very easy for someone who doesn't care much about the gift that they have, who doesn't think much about the gift they have, or doesn't actually have a faith that matches the words that they say, to not take that very seriously as a gift. And so the result of not taking the gift of prophecy seriously would probably be prophesying things that you don't really mean or believe or think about or care about. And and what you end up with is a person who can say lots of big, impressive, crazy sounding things, but there's nothing, no kind of maybe belief or faith in those things behind it. He says, if prophecy, prophecy, then prophesy in proportion to the faith you have. Be real. Be, be you as you prophesy in proportion to our faith. If service, then this is crazy. This is going to blow your mind. The way that you use your gift, if you have the gift of service, this is so crazy, is you serve. That's how you use your gift. If you use your gift of service even though it's not up on a stage, even though it's not in front of a group of people, even though they may not write as many books about it or teach college classes on how to do it, guess what? If you have the gift of service, then what it looks like for you to be who God has created you to be, which is an incredible, incredible thing, is to serve others in the body of Christ. It's that simple. If the one who teaches, then teach care about the teaching and do the teaching. Don't do something else if that's not the thing that God has gifted you in and called you to do, even if it seems like the need is different. The one who exhorts and his exhortations, the same thing. Exhortation is encouragement. It is one who encourages and and, and exhorts and tells people things that make them feel built up. You think about like, you know, you know, who, what, what does it even look like for someone to have that kind of a gift? How important is that kind of a gift, right? That seems like kind of like a bonus gift that they kind of throw on when all the other gifts get assigned. Like, it'd be nice to have some encouragement. Why don't you do that? We'll all do these jobs, and you can just go around and encourage everybody. That would be nice. Thank you. You don't have another job that you can do, right? I can tell you that um, there have been so many times in my life, I'll say in the past year just to make it easier. I mean, it happened before that, but I'd say it's happened in the last year. It's happened in the last month. It's happened probably, I think it's happened in the last week. That God has used a person with the gift of encouragement to encourage, exhort me, and in doing so, God speaks to me through this person. That there is so much life that is given when encouragement is given that is real, that is genuine. Not like encouragement that doesn't mean anything or that goes out to everyone about everything, but like a person with a gift. To actually be sensitive to when the Holy Spirit is prompting them to encourage someone or to a person with encouragement is someone who pays attention to the things that people do and takes a, takes a point to say like, can I just tell you like how encouraged I am or, or, or how great this thing is or so no one else might see this thing that you're doing but can I just tell you um, to keep doing it because God is using you in doing it. That isn't a little extra bonus thing. That is like the lifeline that keeps many of us continuing to serve and to give and to do things knowing and being reminded. Like It isn't small faith to need encouragement. God didn't create us all to to serve without needing encouragement. He created us to serve knowing that there'd be people in the body who would encourage and exhort the body. So the one who contributes, it's simple. If your gift is to give then give. Do it well. Do it generously. This word actually, generosity, it translates to then give in simplicity. And I think that means, I actually think that means, and I might be biased, I don't know, but to give enough that you live more simply than if you weren't giving. That's what generosity is. It affects your standard of living, which is how Christians are called to actually give. We don't give as the world gives. We give sacrificially. And if that is your gift, then do that and do that well. Don't just, don't just give maybe more than others can because you have the ability to do that, but it still just is a drop in the bucket for you. That's not you using your gift. That's you kind of like uh, getting out of having to use all the other gifts maybe with what you have. So the one who leads, lead with zeal, Don't lead um, because you're forced to. Don't lead because absolutely no one else refuses to. Um, Lead with zeal and with passion because you recognize that there's vision and there's clarity that God has given you and, and a way to kind of bring people together. So the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. That's such a weird one, right? Acts of mercy and cheerfulness, right? Here's the way mercy works. Mercy is the things that we do for one another and we receive nothing in return okay? So there are people who require mercy. We all require mercy, let's be honest. We all require mercy. But often there are some that require a lot of mercy, and they will get it because they require it so much. But that doesn't mean that the people who show mercy to them want to show mercy to them. And so what happens is you have those who are in need And they're used to people helping them, but not doing it with a glad heart and with a cheerful attitude because this is the way that God has gifted me to serve. No, they're used to people just kind of begrudgingly uh, giving of themselves because no one else is going to, and I kind of couldn't get out of it or something like that. I feel guilty, right? It's all driven by guilt. Mercy driven by guilt is often very common. And what he's saying is he's saying if you have the gift, if God has given you this gift of mercy, then what that means is that you can be cheerful in being merciful towards others while others will have a harder time doing that. And you know, there's nothing better than being in need of mercy and having someone show you mercy, the mercy of God, and not make you feel bad about it, but actually make you feel like, no, this actually fills me up as well. There was no better news to me in these last few weeks than, than, that, than that, that, that good reminder that what motivates us to live the Christian life is the mercy of God because he desires to give us his mercy. He's rich in mercy. He doesn't give it to us out of obligation or begrudgingly. He gives it to us because he wants his children to receive his mercy. This is what it looks like. And you hear these gifts and you see these things kind of listed off and you go like, okay, so like, so like, how does that even look, right? Like, I mean, you, you have these ministries and these things in the church, and, you know, it's it's like, okay, you have children's ministry. Well, you need some people with the gifts of service. There you go. Maybe like a teacher. You know, there you go. That's children's ministry. Move on. You need small groups, right? Well, you got a leader, right? That's it. Okay, what else is there? That's it. That's a, that's all there is, right? And you look around, and you go, well, how do you really use all these gifts, right? But then you look a little bit closer. You look at a children's ministry, and you say, you know, there there needs to be someone with a plan. There needs to be someone... To lead that. Who do we want? What do we want to teach our children? How do we want to partner with our families? How do we want to support families in discipling one another? Who's going to figure those things out and understand those things? We need someone. We need people to teach People to instruct and pass on truths and ask the question, how do we communicate the truths of God to six-year-olds, to eight-year-olds, to to ten-year-olds? What kind of scriptures, what kind of stories, what kind of questions do we ask? How do we actually impart this knowledge of God onto young people? Who do you think are like the best teachers in the world? Do you think they're people who teach college students who are forced to be there? Well, they're not forced to be there, but you know what I mean? Uh, no, it's the people who have to keep the attention span of a six year old and try to talk about something, right? These are the most skilled teachers in the world. These are the people with the gift of teaching. Someone to care. Someone to care. Someone to show mercy towards children by caring and being present. Kids learn through, through play, through relationship. They learn through connections and things that are built over time. There need to be people who care and are willing to be present week in and week out. Someone to serve. Who do you think is going to prepare all those kids' crafts that I know you take home and you hang up on your fridge and you show everybody who comes to visit because you're so proud of them and you've never thrown a single one away, Right? Who do you think finds out where to where puts the goldfish in the in the in the goldfish cupboard and who do you think picks up all the goldfish crumbs when they get trampled all over on the ground so that next week there aren't any goldfish crumbs on the ground people to serve people to to give of themselves sacrificially so that children can can know who Jesus is and I wonder if there's a need for encouragement I wonder if there's a need for that. If you have any connection whatsoever to anyone involved in any school anywhere for the last few years, you know the desperate need for encouragement and really lack of encouragement when we find ourselves in a time of crisis, right? The desperate need for the ability. I have talked to people who were literally like a day away from walking away from their job when a person called them into an office and gave them the kind of encouragement that made them go you know what this is what i need to do this is where i need to be i've seen it and i've heard of it you look at a small group and you go well yeah you have a leader and you have a bunch of people that come or maybe they don't come it just kind of depends on what's going on in their week right no that's not what the community of faith looks like in scripture that is not a group of people who have distinctive and different gifts A small group is the exact same thing. There are people who lead and there are people who can teach with the knowledge that they have. There are people who can serve one another. There are people who host. There are people who show mercy to people who are hurting. There are people that encourage one another as they're desperately in need of encouragement. There are people who speak words of faith and prophecy. That a small group doesn't have to be a group of people that just kind of come when they can and then someone who kind of leads the whole thing. A small group can actually be a community of people using all of their gifts. It's almost like that's maybe how God intended it to be in the church. God tells us that we're different, but God also tells us how much the church needs us. That he actually set it up this way. That Christ's physical body was here on the earth accomplishing tremendous things in God's name. And when Christ's physical body left this earth, he left the church in his place. And our church now does the work that Jesus did. And I don't think I can raise my hand and say, I'm up to the task of doing everything that Jesus did when he was on the earth. I might be able to take a crack at, and an aspect of maybe what Jesus did and what the church looks like now today. But the only way that this really can work is for us to recognize and know who we really are and take that from God's word. A church filled with people who aren't desperately trying to compete with one another and figure out all the time who they're meant to be based on all the changing things in life, but instead know who they are because of who God tells them they are embraces the fact that they're different rather than all of us trying to look the same, and sees how much the church needs us, would be a completely revolutionary thing. I think honestly that the last couple of years have been pretty hard for a lot of people. I don't know if that's you've heard that, but um, I think that the way that we've dealt with that is we've kind of like had to take a step back from a lot of things in life. Um, you know, my son's involved in football right now, and, you know, it's no different there when the coach sends out the email and says, all right, parents, who can volunteer? And there's like crickets, right? Because everyone's just like proud of themselves that they actually got back into something and they actually started doing something again. They're like, I'm going to dip my toe into this thing, and, and maybe we'll just start with that, right? And, and, and I think that that's kind of how many of us are having to approach and kind of come out back into the real world into many of the things of life. I think that can happen in the church very easily. And I think the church in our nation and our culture was already set up in such a way that it was built much more like a consumer-oriented machine than anything else, right? Like, uh, church is a thing that I kind of come to um, because they do make it pretty easy, or at least they do a pretty good job of trying to make it easy. And then I come to when I can, and then I participate in worship. and, And then eventually, eventually over time, I will probably maybe get to a point where I'm able to actually, like, have a gift and I use it. But that's for only some people. Besides, what would they even need me to do anyway, right? I think it's really easy even to be tempted as the church to say, yeah, let's function that way. Let's just make it as easy as possible for each other to be a part of this group rather than actually do what Scripture tells us. And as much as I would love to do that... That would be betraying what Paul tells us in this first part of living out the Christian life with our new minds, we're called to do. That would rob from us the ability to recognize who we are in God. It would rob from us the ability to celebrate the differences that we all have. And it would rob from us the ability to actually see how much we are a part of the church and how we give and how we serve. It requires sacrifice. It requires stepping out of our comfort zone. But it also means getting to use our gifts, feeling like we're actually a part of this thing and that we're actually making um, the body of Christ do God's work in this world and in this community. And I think that's an incredible thing to do. Let's pray.